You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles, and uh, we're going to spend our time in Genesis chapter 3, and so you can flip there. Um, I think we've all had that dream. I don't think I'm alone. I know I'm not alone. Um, It's not always exactly the same, but I, I think it's still that dream. You know the one, the dream in which you are exposed, right? It looks a little different for each of us. Um, years ago, my version of it was the recurring dream that, uh, that I had showed up for my first day of, of classes at college and couldn't find the right room. And uh, no matter what I did, I'm scurrying through the halls, arms full of books, just now realizing how nerdy that is, um, can't find the right classroom. I'm exposed. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I don't belong here. Um, haven't had it for a while, but, but the more recent version of, of, of that dream for me, I, I think is maybe a little comical. It's showing up to preach in, uh, in a t-shirt, of all things. Gasp. Um, I, I grew up kind of old school. My education was a little old school. Um, the first time I preached without a tie on was in this building. And, uh, and so showing up with a, a t-shirt to preach feels like being exposed, being shown to be the fool, the fraud, uh, the one who doesn't belong. And uh, yeah, it's different for different people, but the basic principle is that that dream um, that, that shows up for so many of us, um, being exposed, right? It's the showing up naked to work. Um, there's this sense of fear, uh, a bad dream that, 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 that sucks us all in, that it's, it's, it's all over the place, um, and, uh, and that fear, that anxiety that is so prevalent wasn't always there. It wasn't always the case. That, that fear had that, a very distinct moment of beginning. Uh, it began right here uh, in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, last week, we looked at verses 1 to 6. We saw uh, the beginning of what we call the fall. Humanity's fall into sin. Adam and Eve um, disobeying the Lord eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, plunging the human race into a state of sin and rebellion against God. Verses 7 to 13, then, where we're going to pick up this morning, um, we see the beginning of the effects of sin. This is the, the fallout of the fall. Have a look with me. Genesis 3, we're going to start reading it, verse 7. It says this, Then the eyes... Of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Would you pray with me? Father, would you be at work now? God, we come as those so deeply affected by this moment in history, by this fall into sin. God, it affects us right down to uh, the depths of, of who we are. Help us to see clearly this morning um, by your truth, by your word, um, the effects of sin in us and the remedy of Christ. Lord, open our eyes, convict us, challenge us, transform us by the the work of your spirit through your word. Father, would you be at work in me? Um, Lord, I am not sufficient for these things. Would you speak through me um, by your word um, for your glory, Lord? And may the words of my mouth um, be true to your word. God, if anything I have to say is not your truth that those words would be uh, cast aside, forgotten. Um, But God, that your word would go forward and that your word um, would be um, building your church in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, immediately after eating of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they find out, as is so often the case, Satan's lies, um, are mixed with truth. Um, there is always that, um, that mixture there. The serpent promised Eve that if they ate of the fruit of the tree, their eyes would be opened. And indeed, their eyes were opened. The problem is what Satan fully knew and just neglected to mention is they would not like what they saw. The first thing they, they see, now their eyes having been opened to the world of sin, uh, is a provoked conscience provoked conscience. Their eyes are open and all of a sudden um, they saw a whole new side of the world, something they had never seen before. They saw a side of the world that included shame and fear and guilt. This provoked conscience is is a terrible thing. In modern folklore, we, we speak of the, the conscience as right, the little the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other having this little fight trying to pull us one way or another. Um, biblically, the conscience is not a voice from the outside. It's not a, it's not a Jiminy Cricket. Um, it's from the inside. The conscience is, is our emotional response to how we live in light of the, the values that we hold in light of what we believe to be true and right and wrong. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, The the conscience is to our souls what the pain sensors are to our bodies. So when we act in a way that we know is wrong, our conscience is pricked, is activated, and and the, the nerves, like the nerves in our fingertips, come alive. The provoked conscience comes alive in Adam and Eve. Um, and first, it produces shame. It produces shame. 
Verse 7, the, the eyes of both are opened and they knew they were naked. That's it right there. That's that feeling of being exposed, uncovered. It's this feeling of shame. This, this provoked conscience feels dirty, feels ashamed. There, there's something that needs to be covered, something that, that I don't want people to see anymore. Shame is this uncomfortable feeling of being exposed, and so they try to cover themselves. They take fig leaves. Fig leaves are a, a large, sturdy leaf, and, and they, they try to join them together, and they make loincloths for themselves. This is a tragic turn in the reality of, of our world. This is the first entrance of that feeling that is so pervasive that all of us laugh about dreaming about it. Because it's everywhere. Adam and Eve have sinned and now they feel shame. Secondly, this provoked conscience produces fear. Look at verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord Walking in the garden, we don't know what that sound would have been, but, but they heard it, um, and they did something they had never before done. For the first time, they, they ran and hid themselves amongst the trees. And the reason they hid is made clear down in verse 10. Adam tells the Lord, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. So close on the heels of shame comes fear. Fear because of sin. Adam and Eve heard the Lord coming and, and they, they ran. Like, like a kid who just put a, a baseball through the picture window and then hears his dad coming out the front door. I got to get out of here. This isn't going to go well. I need to be somewhere else. And so Adam and Eve hide themselves. Their, their fear, fear of judgment, fear of wrath, fear of punishment. From this moment forward, because of sin, there is in mankind a fear of God, not, not the fear of the Lord in a positive way, not a respect and honor for who the Lord is, but a terror, a repulsion, a, a fear. And in one sense, that is not a wrong instinct, right? Deuteronomy 4.24 warns Israel against sin, and it says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That's an intentionally terrifying passage. That language is intentionally terrifying. A consuming fire. That's how the Lord deals with sin. That's how he feels toward unholiness. John 3.36, Jesus himself, Jesus who today is so often painted as, as just loving and gentle and, and accepts everyone for who they are. Jesus says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's terrifying. God is wrathful against sin because he is infinitely good. He has an infinite hatred of all that is evil. And that ought to make us uncomfortable. We are right in that sense to fear the Lord in our sin, to want to run from him. The, the provoked conscience brings shame, it brings fear. And then right at the root of it, that provoked conscience and the shame and the fear, 
It flows out from guilt. It flows out from guilt. Look at verse 11. The Lord diagnoses Adam's behavior. He knows exactly what's going on, even though it's phrased in a question. Verse 11, he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, the Lord knows exactly what has happened. His questions are not for the purpose of gaining information, but rather exposing the truth. Uh, And and his words here uh, are reminding us, again, it's not about the tree, right? It's not about some mystical magic fruit. This was about obedience. Obedience to the command of the Lord, and they they were guilty of breaking that command. Now, we need to make a distinction here. Shame and fear are feelings that the conscience produces, right? If the conscience is to our soul what the pain sensors are to our bodies, then then fear and shame is that feeling of pain coming up the arm. But guilt is something different. Guilt is the contact between the hot element and the fingers. Guilt is what causes this response. Guilt, properly defined, biblically defined, uh, is not a feeling. I know we talk about feeling guilty, and we all know that feeling. Um, I think that has more to do with shame and fear. Guilt of itself is not a subjective reality. It's not something you feel. It's something you are. It's a legal reality. If you break God's law, you are guilty. Whether you feel it or not is secondary. You are guilty. Guilty, And that guilt then provokes the conscience when things are working properly, brings about these feelings then of, of fear and shame that alerts you to your guilt. Now, any modern psychologist and therapist deny God's law, and so many um, so-called Christian counselors who don't take the word of God seriously, they will downplay this. Right? They speak of, uh, of false guilt almost completely. They treat guilt as if it's simply kind of disordered feelings that we need to learn to ignore or push aside or bury or overcome. But if you are actually guilty before God, if guilt is a legal reality that you're standing in, then getting rid of those feelings is not helpful. It doesn't solve the problem. Sin ought to provoke the conscience. That's a a good thing. Those feelings of shame and fear are, are warning signs. Again, like the, like the pain that comes from the hot element causes you to pull your hand off of the heat. So shame and fear should cause us to pull our lives back from sin. The problem is, our conscience is only as good as our understanding of God's law. Again, the, the conscience is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. It comes from our heart, our understanding. Adam and Eve felt the effects of the provoked conscience because they knew God's commands. They knew they were, that they had broke God's commands. The conscience is not infallible. It is not at all perfect, right? The conscience is helpful, um, and yet it's not always trustworthy. There is such a thing as wrongful shame, wrongful fear, Some have phantom pains that harass them, that that come from nothing. The nerves misfire. 
often victims of sexual abuse, are plagued with feelings of shame. Feel like they need to hide, they feel dirty, they feel defiled, but their conscience is misfiring. Sin uh, being perpetrated against you by someone else does not make you guilty. I understand it's painful and it is a shameful thing and and there should be a level of disgust, but, but the victim of that sin should not bear that shame. The victim should not feel as if they have anything to hide. They're not guilty. On the other hand, it's completely possible to carry on in sin with a clear conscience. At the extreme, um, we're told the conscience can be seared. Like the, the hand that's burnt on the element so many times that it ceases any longer to feel. So the conscience that is consistently transgressed or ignored, that is pushed through, can be seared. It can be rendered unfeeling and, and ineffective. First Timothy 4.2 speaks of the, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The conscience can be seared. Um, the conscience can also be deceived. Just like the serpent in the garden was crafty, so sin is deceptive. There are things that we, that we know to be wrong and, and we linger on them as Eve lingered in looking at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and we begin to ask ourselves, did God really say? And we, we take something that we know to be sin and we desire it and we begin to talk to ourselves and maybe my situation's different. Maybe that doesn't really apply here. Um, That might be generally true, but I'm justified in what I'm doing for for these reasons, and we can talk ourselves into it. We can can deceive our own conscience. And so that our conscience becomes quiet, or at least quieter, when it it should be loud. That's why Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the strength of fellowship. That's our need for community, that if my conscience is deceived, um, my brother might challenge me on that. The conscience can be seared. The consciously can be deceived. And finally, um, the conscience can simply be uninformed or misinformed. If you're not aware of God's commands, chances are your conscience isn't provoked when you break them. And there are certain things that are, that are obvious to the human conscience. Murder, theft, lying, these seem to be kind of ubiquitously known across humanity. But the law of God's not always that straightforward, and and neither is our sin. And it's absolutely possible to be sinning in ignorance and therefore to sin with a clear conscience, because the conscience is uninformed. Psalm 119 11, David says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The, the safeguard against an uninformed or a misinformed conscience is the Word of God. It's to get into the Bible, to do the hard work, to have the, the discipline to sit down um, morning by morning, open the Bible and read it. Not just skim through it, not just peruse it, but actually sit down slowly, contemplatively, read the Word. Do it with a pen in hand. Dig deep into Scripture. Become intimately familiar with His Word. So inform your conscience. 
And listen to your conscience. Don't allow it to be seared. Don't allow it to be deceived. The the conscience is this great help to us. It's God's gift to us. Sin is serious. It's deadly. Guard your conscience. Be sensitive to your conscience. But at the same time, don't fully trust your conscience. Always bring it back to the Word of God. What is the state of your conscience today? You stop and assess your heart. Do you feel shame before the Lord? Do you feel fear before the Lord because of your guilt before the Lord? Are there things in your life that you know are wrong? Things that are causing you shame and fear and you keep doing them? And if the answer is no, well, you still have to stop and ask, are there things in my life that should bother me but aren't? Are there things that I need to revisit in my life, things that I've been ignoring or justifying? Is my conscience informed? Is it deceived? May it even be possibly seared. Don't neglect your conscience. That's the the first thing we see. This this fallout of sin is the provoked conscience in the heart of man. The second thing we see is the pervasive consequences. Sin doesn't just provoke the conscience, but it also infects every part of us. And and we see that playing out here in Adam and Eve. Even their response to their sinfulness is sinful, right? It's corrupted by sin. First, sin destroys their intimacy with one another. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, And they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We saw earlier, Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, having sinned and provoked their consciences, how do they deal with that shame? They're trying to cover it. They try to cover their their nakedness. And and this is about more than just their experience of shame as individuals, but what does it do between them? Remember uh, back to to, to Genesis 2.25, they're both naked and not ashamed. Well, the the verse just before that, 2.24, therefore a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That, that nakedness and lack of shame was a picture of the closeness of their relationship. Their, their one fleshness was uninterrupted, the unity between them. And that relationship between them, between even the, the closest of relationships, is now torn apart, is destroyed by shame, by sin. Sin creates distance between us. All of a sudden, we don't like what we see in ourselves, and so we don't want to be seen. And we begin to to pull back from from one another. We begin to protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves against others. Our, Our relationships become shallow. Instead of literal fig leaves, we put up these metaphorical walls. We don't let people see the real us. We, we give people this kind of Facebook, Instagram version of, of who we are. The, the cleaned up, sanitized version. I had a friend who was uh, uh, an interior decorator and, and had a blog and actually was even featured in some magazines. And it was so relieving to go over to her house 
and see a perfect corner that was all set up and, and, and she had taken pictures for this piece on her blog and, and you could see once you're actually there um, that what she had done was just pulled all of the kids' toys and the junk back and she picked a corner that wasn't hit by marker as the kids ran through the house and that was the picture that goes to the magazine. But the real life picture is a little different, isn't it? There's something more there behind the scenes. We like to put forward the, the picture. This is me. Everybody see me. This is the me I want, I want you to see. We do that with our lives. God said it's, it's not good for man to be alone, and so he created relationships and, and community and sin and shame, build up these walls, put us into this, this state of self-protection so that all of a sudden um, we can be surrounded by people and still be alone. Sadly, that doesn't exclude the church. By the insidious work of sin and Satan, church becomes a place where people feel pressured to have it all together. Put on your church clothes. Put on your church smile. Go to church and prove that you're a good person. By, by being there, you're showing everyone that you've, you've got it all together. It's heartbreaking. I have a secret for you. Nobody here has it all together. Not you, not me, not the person sitting next to you. Our, our favorite North American fig leaf is one simple, small word, fine. Right? How are you doing? Fine, fig leaf, block. How was your week? Fine, fig leaf, don't want to tell you, don't ask. And I, I get it, I, we could make way too much of that right? I mean, how many of us said that to each other this morning? Um, I get it. It's a, it's a cultural, polite, how you doing as we pass, and, and sometimes fine just means, hey, good to see you. I acknowledge your greeting. Um, that's not wrong, but as the church, we need to learn to get beyond that. Right? Not that we have to abandon saying the word fine, but we need to learn how to have real conversations, I challenge us even this morning. Again, don't be paranoid to ask someone, how are you? But if you have a real moment to actually ask, how are you? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Make it your goal this Sunday just to ask one person or every Sunday just to have one of those conversations that goes beyond how are you to how are you doing? And make it your goal just once every Sunday. To get beyond, fine. I mean, greet people, be happy, say hi to uh, everybody. But as you have opportunity to really actually let the guard down and say, this is how my week was. This is what I'm wrestling with or, or growing in. And hey, maybe you're doing great. That's okay. You don't have to feel bad about doing well, but explain it. Talk about why. What is the Lord doing? What is, how has he cared for you this week? Maybe you're not doing great. That's okay too. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be wrestling with some stuff. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay to be anxious, to be dealing with sin or the damage of sin. You don't have to share all the details, but, but on Sunday morning, we can definitely just pull back that fig leaf a little bit, be honest, 
Some are more comfortable with that, just um, sharing their lives and their struggles just by, by personality. Um, some of you, um, that's a real challenge. I just encourage you to share a little bit more than you normally would. If that means you just need to say, I had a rough week, then say that. Let's continue to work to bring down those barriers that sin builds up between us. The consequences of sin are so pervasive. Sin destroys our intimacy with one another, but but much more significantly, sin destroys our intimacy with God. And this really gets to the the heart of the passage here, the way that, that Adam and Eve, as newly minted sinners, respond to the Lord. Look at what sin does, the relationship between them and God. First, Adam and Eve try to hide their sin. Begins with the the fig leaves. That's their attempt to to cover their shame from from one another, but also to the Lord. Um, But that attempt to cover gets immediately ratcheted up when they hear a sound, the sound of the Lord God in the garden. All of a sudden, fig leaves aren't going to cut it. This isn't enough. And so they run. They hide. As the, as the holy God enters the garden, they, they do something they never before had done. And this is one of the saddest sentences in, in all of the Bible. Verse 8, look at this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Take a biblical view of this. Psalm 1611, David says, You, Lord, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the, that's the presence of the Lord. Joy. The path of life. Pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21.6 says, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence, the joy of the presence of the Lord. Exodus thirty-three, fifteen. Moses cries out to God, if you don't go up with us, then, 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 then we don't want to go. If your presence isn't with us, don't, don't take us from here. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall be in his presence. That's blessedness. The presence of the Lord is the place of the utmost joy and pleasure and, and comfort and hope and happiness and, and security and belonging. The presence of the Lord is everything the human heart longs for and desperately needs, freely given, abundant and overflowing. And because of sin, Adam and Eve hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Because of sin, we run from the very thing that we should be running to. We try to cover and hide our sin. We tell ourselves if we just keep our distance from God, he, he won't see. Somehow that will make it better, but it doesn't work. Verse 8 says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. Verse 9 begins with the word, but. But, it, they hid themselves, but it, it didn't work. The Lord God calls to the man, says to him, where are you? Apparently in a way that uh, made it obvious to Adam that, that he was not hiding. Adam answers. He doesn't hold his breath and crouch a little lower. Um, he's caught. He comes out. He's been exposed. 
There's no hiding from the Lord. He sees you. He knows you fully. Sadly, Adam sees that that hiding is not effective. And so then he turns to making excuses. The Lord continues to ask questions. Again, clearly questions that he already knows the answer to. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's like a mother confronting a child, standing beside the open cookie jar, which is now on the floor with the lid off, and the cookies are half gone, and not only the floor, but the child are covered in crumbs. And the mom says, did you take a cookie from the jar? Yes, she knows. She's on to you. The Lord isn't looking for answers. He's not expecting to gain new information, but he's giving Adam the opportunity to come forward. He's drawing Adam out. Adam's response in his sin is affected by his sin. And so he goes from trying to hide his sin to then trying to excuse his sin. Verse 12, it says, The man said, The woman... The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's not my fault. I, I, didn't, I didn't do it. How quickly his tone has changed. Just a few verses back to 23, he was singing with joy. This now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And, and this great delight of the precious gift of God that is his, his wife. And, and no sooner does sin enter the picture that that Eve becomes no more than a human shield. Now, ah, her fault. Under the bus she goes. It wasn't my sin. The woman did it. It was a whole new level of sin tearing apart their relationship. Now they're not only hiding from each other, but they've, they've made enemies of one another. Adam is so emboldened by his desperation to try to protect himself, to guard himself. Um, he actually goes one step further. Notice it's not just the woman. How does he describe her? The woman that you gave me. If we're being honest here, Lord, this was your idea. You put her here. Really, God, a lot of this blame falls on, on you. That's gutsy. The Lord obviously is not swayed by Adam's blame shifting, um, but he continues to ask questions. He looks to the woman, who is not innocent in this, and he says to her, what is this you have done? And Eve, not about to let the blame stop with her, follows the example of her husband, and she passes the buck. It wasn't my fault, it was the serpent. He deceived me. I was lied to, I was confused, I didn't, I didn't know. This is the, the pervasive consequence of sin. It, just, it corrupts everything. It twists our hearts. We want to blame someone. We want to point the finger at another person or at God. We want to, we want to be able to, to pass that, that guilt along. James 1.13 is very clear about the nature of our sin. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. There's what Adam was saying. God, this is your fault. You put me here. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But 
Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. How? By his own desires. And when desire, when he is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, what is fully grown, brings forth death. It's our own desires. The problem's in us now. The problem is this sinful, corrupted desires in us. There's, there's no passing the blame. And once again, the, the details may be changed to protect the guilty, but one way or another, we all do it. We're all infected this way. We try to hide our sin. We try to excuse our sin. We run from God. And I grew up in a Christian home. I knew there was a God. I understood he was holy and just. I had some really good fig leaves going, and they were top-notch. I was helping in the Sunday school and the youth group planning team. I was teaching Bible studies. Uh, I had even led a friend to Christ who today is leading a church of like 3,500 people. Um, But it was all fig leaves. It it was all a front. It was a cover for sin. I did those things in hopes that that the people around me would be impressed by me and wouldn't look deeper that God wouldn't look deeper. And as I carefully manicured my fig leaves, I hid from God. I remember laying in my bed crying angry tears at God because I knew in my heart that that he was real and he was holy and that I was guilty. How can I face him? Racked with shame, I feared God. I hated it. I wanted it gone, but I ran. I hid. I couldn't bring myself to pray because all the, my sin wanted to do was recoil from God, be as far from God as possible. Some of those still, instincts still persist. I sin against my, my kids, lacking in, in patience, and I get angry. Or against my wife, I'm, I'm, I'm selfish and not leading her the way I should. And, and my, my instinctive reaction is to hide, to make excuses. I want to just cover it. Let's pretend like it didn't happen. Can we just move on and pretend like that never happened? Besides, I have all the excuses. I was tired. I was stressed. The kids were being a little bit crazy. It's really their fault. My wife's expectations are far too high. Um, It's not my fault. We hide. We excuse. Why? Why? Why do we let our sin corrupt the way that we deal with our sin? Like an alcoholic who turns to alcohol to cure his hangover. Like someone who is buried under a crushing weight of debt goes out shopping to try to ease the stress. We are a mess. We are brokenness piled on top of brokenness, and and that's exactly what makes this third point so remarkable. This passage shows that that not only um, the provoked conscience from sin and this pervasive uh, consequence of sin, but it also shows us the persistent call of God. The persistent call of God. Adam and Eve turned their backs on him, They did the the one thing that he had commanded them not to do. He was their creator. He was their provider. He had given them everything they needed abundantly above and beyond. And the moment the serpent slithered into the garden, they discarded everything they knew to be true about God. They listened to the lies of the serpent. So they, they minimized God's 
provision. I don't know if God really gave us all the good things that we need. And they minimize the, the nature of sin. I mean, it's just a, a fruit and it looks so nice. They misrepresented God's commands. I don't know that this is fair, God. Can you really ask this much? They misrepresented God's heart as if he was withholding something good from them. They denied his word. They denied his goodness. And they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree from which the Lord had commanded them not to eat. And what does the Lord do? How does the Lord respond? Verse 8, the Lord comes walking into the garden. He knew precisely what, would, what had happened. He knew exactly what he was going to find there. And yet he came down anyway. It's a good thing I'm not God. I had to burn the garden down. Right? Like, squash this ball of clay, call a mulligan, start over. But God comes down. And as he comes, they hide. And yet his first word, the, the first words of God spoken to sinful humanity from the mouth of the Lord is this loving, gracious call, where are you? Where are you? Even as they scrambled and stammered and, and, and stuttered, trying to shift the blame and, and push back and, 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 and hide and cover, even as they try to pin the blame on, on God himself, he just gently questions them. He draws them out. He's pursuing them. This is the gracious heart of God toward a sinful, rebellious human race. It's astounding. We sin, we cover, we hide, we excuse, and he persistently calls. He reaches out in love and grace to the very people who cut him the deepest. He warned them. If they ate from the tree, the consequence would be death. And yet, when they ate from that tree, he did not immediately crush them in death. That's God's patience. That's grace. And though sin does have consequences, there was an inevitable fallout. Death would become an unavoidable part of this world, as well as corruption and shame and pain and suffering. The Lord had already made a plan by which he would rescue sinners out of this pit of their own making. And the God who came down into the garden in, in loving pursuit of Adam and Eve would again come one day into this world in the person of Jesus Christ to finish that pursuit. In Christ Jesus, the conscience, the provoked conscience can be cleansed. It can be restored. And that, that, that conscience can only be restored if, firstly, our guilt is removed. We were guilty. We didn't just feel guilty. We were guilty. We were right about it. We had broken God's law. We had rebelled against God just as Adam and Eve did. God said clearly in the garden that the punishment for rebellion against him, uh, the punishment for sin was, was death. It's not enough to just make uh, the conscience feel better. Something actually has to be done about the guilt. When Jesus came, he died on the cross in our place so that the guilty could be made not guilty. Not just feeling better, but 
actually, in reality, not guilty. Romans 3, 23, 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's us, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We can be justified. Justified, just like guilty is a a legal reality, we were guilty. Justified is also a legal reality. And for those sinners who are in Christ, they are justified before God. They are actually made not guilty. But Jesus, on the cross, our guilt is removed. And then our shame can be cleansed. Having been made not guilty, having our sin forgiven and and wiped clean, we can be cleansed from shame. Having sinned, Adam and Eve saw that they they were naked, they were rightly ashamed. They bore their own shame. On the cross, Jesus, who had never sinned, was stripped naked, was pinned up like a a criminal and mocked and cursed, scorned. He was put to shame. But he deserved no shame. He bore our shame. Romans 10, 11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Our guilt can be taken away. Our shame can be cleansed. We're we're actually made innocent before the Lord, and so our our shame is gone too. There's nothing left to be ashamed of. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 follows after a list of of the most egregious and disgusting sins, And, and then Paul writes to the church, and such were some of you. That was us. We were guilty of these atrocities against God, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He piles it on, washed, sanctified, justified. If you've trusted in Christ, if through repentance and faith in Him, you've you've put your hope in Him for salvation, you're made new. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're made holy. You might have Guilty feelings, but you are not guilty. You might feel shame, but not rightly. That that shame has been taken away. The Lord restores our conscience, taking away our guilt, cleansing our shame, and then our fear is gone. Guilt removed, shame cleansed, fear disappears. Though we once feared God because of our, our guilt, and rightly so, 1 John 4.18 reminds us that perfect love casts out all fear. And if we look at the, the cross, what do we see there? We see the, the love of God toward us in sending His Son. And there's no reason to be afraid anymore. He's taken our guilt. He's taken our shame. There's, there's nothing left to fear. In Christ The God who was wrathful against sin, who was a a consuming fire, now comes to us in love. He came not to destroy, but to rescue. Not with wrath, but with grace. 
outside of Christ, if we're standing on our own trying to defend ourselves and hide our own guilt and deal with our own shame, yeah, there's a lot to fear. But in him there is forgiveness, cleansing, grace, love. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. That's it right there, the blood of Christ that cleanses the conscience, rescues us from sin to serve the Lord. We can be made right before God, and in Christ Jesus, the conscience can be restored. And that then, in Christ Jesus, the consequences of sin can be undone. The consequences can be undone. These, these pervasive consequences that, that ruled our hearts, having our guilt and shame and fear taken away, um, we have reconciliation with one another. If we all know, if we all acknowledge that we're sinners here, that that's not a surprise to anybody anymore, that every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, if we gather here as those who, who recognize our sin and who know that, that in Christ we have forgiveness, that in Christ our, our shame is taken away, then what do we have to hide from one another? What are the walls that are building up between us? We gather here to, to worship Christ, not as perfect, but as those who recognize our common sinfulness, and those who rejoice together in a common Savior. This is the gathering of the people who need help. This should be the easiest place to come and let down your guard because everybody else here is saying, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. That frees us to, to put down the fig leaves, to speak honestly, openly to one another. No guilt, no shame, no fear. In Christ, we have reconciliation with, with one another. And most importantly, in Christ, we have reconciliation with God. He repairs that broken relationship. Our sin separated us from God. It, it broke that relationship. And so Adam hid from the presence of the Lord, ironically imposing on himself the very punishment that he deserved because God is holy, because God is a consuming fire. And so um, no, no sin or sinner can truly be in the, in the goodness of his presence, only the presence of his wrath. That's why Jesus, though he was without sin, though he had lived his entire life fully and completely in the, the goodness of the presence of God, the, the beatific vision, they say, Jesus always saw the face of his Father shining on him until as he hung on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the goodness of the presence of the Lord was ripped away from him. God turned his back on his own son so that he might turn his face toward us. He experienced the wrath that we deserve, that we might have love. He restores us to his perfect presence. This is the, the persistent call of God. This is the grace of God towards us in Christ Jesus, and he continues to call today. He continues to pursue. Where are you? He calls out to sinners who are far from him. If you, don't, if you don't know him this morning, 
If you're trapped in this pit of guilt and fear and shame and that's ruling your heart, he's calling, where are you? He's welcoming you to, to come, to come out of hiding, to come to him in Christ with all your brokenness and sin and mess and lay it before the cross to come in repentance and faith, to be made new. But he also calls to the saints. He calls to those of us who, who do trust in him but to continue to struggle and wrestle with sin. Those whose consciences are, are seared or deceived or, or uninformed. Who though they, have, they, they claim to, to, to be followers of Christ and, and know him continue to battle with sin. Who hide and make excuses in his kindness. The Lord continues to call out, where are you? Come. He welcomes us again in repentance to come to Christ. And he calls also to those who are in Christ, who have been forgiven and made new, but continue to feel shame, continue to wrestle with, with guilt from, from days past, from, from sins long forgiven, long repented of. And he says, come. Why do, you, why do you needlessly bear that? Be washed. Know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He calls to draw us near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace to help in times of need. Would you pray? Father, thank you for your grace. Father, your unimaginable kindness, that though we have turned from you, though we rebelled against you and deserve death and hell, that you have pursued that you gave your own son, that he bore our guilt and our shame, that as we look to the cross, there is now no fear, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you call to, to reconcile us to one another, that we might be honest and transparent, that we might encourage one another and walk together as sinners we need a savior and that you have come to reconcile us to yourself. That though we deserve to be abandoned, cast away from your presence, but instead you turned your back on your son, that you might turn your face toward us. Father, help us. Pray for those who who've never come to that place of repentance, who are walking in their sin, who are trying to hide it and bury it, and maybe their fig leaf is pretty impressive. Nobody would know. You know. There's no hiding from you. God, would you convict their heart even now that they would be broken before you, that they would come to the cross. God, for all of us, those who've been walking with you for the longest time, even the most closely, God, we all have this tendency. We all are so quick to cover, to hide, to bear guilt and shame. Lord, remind us again of the cross. Draw us again to see your love and kindness, the abundance of mercy and grace that we might walk in the newness of life that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness towards us that we did not deserve pray in Jesus' name.